Good morning, Rogers Park. Good morning. Good to be with you all. My name is Phil Adams. Um, I serve as a pastor down in Sabka Sahara, also with Parks Global Ministry. Um, I think John mentioned it, so I'm free to talk about it then. Just really excited. Um, Ruth and I are really excited just for the transition and uh, moving over here. Um, to serve with John, the elders, the team um, here at RP. So just thank you guys for all the um, words of encouragement that we've just received over the last few months. We really appreciate it. We don't, we don't need to worry about that. <laughs> We're just really excited to come alongside um, what God is already doing here, what God's already done through Jason and Lindsay and the team and just building on um, all the incredible um, work that you guys are already doing. So um, thank you. Um, you got a Bible? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, we're in a passage today, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to read verse 25 right down to verse 38. Um, and what we're going to encounter today in our series going through 1 Corinthians is one of the, the many tensions um, found within the Christian life that on one hand, we're called to live, and you'll know this, we're called to live lives of patience. We're called to live lives with a sense of enduring calm and peace even in our waiting, as challenging as that is. We're called to patience within our careers, we're called to patience within our dreams and our longings and our achievements. And this Christ-like patience that flows from a place of trust in God's sovereignty and good plan for our lives. But then on the other hand, yes, we are called to live lives of patience, but we're also to be expectant. We're also called to be a people who are ready, and this is particularly relevant right now during Advent as we're called to be ready for Christ's coming into the world. And at any moment, at the twinkle of an eye, what we are waiting for is Christ's return, for him to come back to rule and reign, to bring about the new heavens and the new earth and the end of history and time as we know it. So the Christian life is one of expectant patience. In a novel called The Idiot, there's a story told of a man um, who we know very little about other than he was sentenced to immediate death by firing squad. He was lined up with others that were facing the same fate and he was told to stand and wait and he waited for 20 minutes to be executed before he was uh, then pardoned. A pardon was read out that in fact he would be getting a lighter sentence and he would not be executed. But for those... 20 minutes, he lived under this certain conviction that in a few minutes he would be dead. And he reflects on what this experience was like to know that just around the corner he would be dead. And you can think about it, you can put yourself in his shoes, imagine knowing that before the end of this message you would be gone. And how he reflects is fascinating. He says, those minutes seemed like endless time and enormous wealth. It seemed to him that in those short minutes he would be able to live so many lives that there was no point yet talking about his last moment. And so he speaks to the people that are around him and he looks to see what he can see around him and he patiently soaks it in. Later in the book we read these words. You know, I don't understand how it's possible to pass by a tree and not be happy to see it, to talk with a man and not be happy that you love him. There are so many things at every step that are so beautiful. Look at a child, look at God's sunrise, look at the grass growing, look into the eyes that are looking at you and love you. This man, a few steps away from his death, said, what if life were to be given back to me? What infinity? And it would all be mine. 
I'd turn every minute into an age, I'd lose nothing, I'd count up every second separately and let nothing be wasted. The space that, that Paul calls us into this morning in the passage that we're about to read is one where, where we're asked to reckon with and ponder how the imminent, at any moment, return of Christ is to alter, change, enriching our perspective on the time that we have been given. What if you had just 20 minutes to live? Not necessarily because you're dying, but because Jesus Christ is coming. Today, Paul wants us to view the short window, the limited span of life that we have been given as a blink in the eye, in an eye, blink of an eye, but not for the sake of stirring within us indifference that we just run the clock out. No, rather, our passage today calls us to live with slow motion, intentionality with the days that we have been given, knowing that between our birth and our death or Christ's return, whichever comes first, is found an enormous wealth of moments that bear the weight of eternal significance. So let's read our passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25 to 38. And it reads like this. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as those they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how he he is to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let him marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and is determined that in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Let's pray before we jump into this passage. God, we um, just come before you, God. We thank you for the church, God. We thank you that we gather here, God, and we encourage one another and we speak into one another's lives, God, and that you are uh, present with us, God, when we gather. So, God, we lean in uh, corporately as one people, God, to hear your voice. God, we need you to lead and guide us, God, and we thank you for your word, that in your word, God, you reveal truth to us, God. So I pray, God, that anything that is um, not from you today would just be dismissed and forgotten. I pray, God, that there will just be an openness and a tenderness and that we'd be just attuned to your spirit during this time, God. Um, And we just pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So after 
listening to the, 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 the passage that I just read, or maybe you even studied it uh, with a small group, already you might be confused in a sense by the introduction, talking about, about time and, and the, the brevity of our lives, because maybe you're asking, is this passage not very clearly about singleness and celibacy and marriage? And you'd be right, the primary uh, pastoral issue that Paul is addressing in Corinth in this passage is about marriage, and it's about singleness. But at the very same time, the heart of what Paul is saying today can be applied to the entirety of our lives, whether we're single or we're married. Paul opens in verse 25, saying this. He says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Paul directs his concern, his attention this morning at the beginning of our passage to those whom he calls the betrothed. And one of the challenges that we have in the the verses that we've got today is even though uh, this passage is about marriage, we know very little about what the process of engagement and getting married in that process looked like in Corinth when this passage was originally written. And so I think that the kind of safest and the, the broadest definition of the betrothed would be those who are not yet married but live with marriage as a future possibility. Those who are not yet married, but live with marriage as a future possibility. The, the single people, people that are uh, dating or even engaged who live with marriage as a not yet future possibility. And I'm very, very grateful that we have many of these people here in part of the church. And then Paul says, concerning these single folk in Corinth, I have no command from the Lord but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And this is kind of a little bit confusing, it's a little unusual, but what Paul is pointing out is that what he is about to say, it's not an explicit command that he heard from the lips of Christ. Rather, Paul is saying that he is using his own judgment as an apostle, as a pastor, reliant on the Holy Spirit to communicate what he believes to be sound and wise and helpful pastoral advice to the church in Corinth. And from our perspective, reading into this, and we see this, this text included, inspired through the Holy Spirit in the canon of Scripture, that means that we here today can receive Paul's words also as sound and wise and helpful pastoral counsel. Paul goes on then to say in verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is or as she is. Are you bound to a wife or a husband? Do not seek to be free. Remain as you are. Are you already free from a wife or a husband? Do not seek one. And this is kind of a bombshell to kind of drop in a passage. If you're free from a wife or a spouse, do not seek one. If you aren't married, don't get married. That's what Paul has just said. So where's Paul going with this? Although we don't know much about the process of getting married and what that looked like in Corinth, we do have an idea from the early verses in 1 Corinthians that there is an influence that has creeped into the church that is causing some of them to believe that it is morally superior to not get married. And that's not something that we experience here, but, or even it's morally superior to not have sex with your spouse, even if you are married. And without going too far into this, this teaching came likely from a belief system called Gnosticism, the belief that there is something inherently bad or evil with the material or physical world. And so this was causing Christians to lean into a kind of spirituality where they sought to separate themselves from the physical world and physical bodily desires. They were shunning any physical unions to this world. It's probably affected what they wore and what they ate, even where they lived. 
But Paul does not agree with this belief system. We know Paul believes in the physical resurrected Christ, as do we. He believes the whole creation. We know in Romans chapter 8, it groans in the pains of childbirth as it awaits redemption and restoration, not ultimate destruction through the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth. This we too believe. For the Christian, that the physical world around us is not bad, it's not even neutral, but the created world around us is something good and beautiful that reflects God's glory. Our bodies, although broken and dying away due to the effects of sin and this physical world, tarnished as it may be, they incredibly already contain the substance of that which will one day become heaven on earth. We also know, though, from the teachings of Christ that in heaven that the covenant union of marriage between two individuals will be dissolved and no longer exist. In heaven, we will no longer relate to one another as husbands and wives. Hopefully, some of us feel a tinge of sadness in that. And yet, that does not mean there will be no marriage in heaven. It simply means that there will be only one marriage in heaven an eternal marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. The substance of marriage in the here and the now is only a foreshadow and a picture of the union of a greater reality and what it will mean for each of us to one day be known and loved and not alone, but intimately present and united with Christ for all eternity. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, speaking about Christ's return, reads like this, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And the angel said in the next verse, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we know clearly from Scripture that marriage is something good and created by God and something that God created to help us grasp and comprehend Christ's commitment and his love for his people. But what's confusing is that these Gnostics who want to distance distance themselves from any physical ties to the world and the Apostle Paul, when it comes to the matter of marriage, they both seem to agree At least initially, even though Paul knows marriage is something good and created by God, Paul says in verse 27, if you don't have a spouse, do not seek one. And then we get to verse 28, where Paul says, but, and this is where Paul distinguishes himself from the Gnostics, he says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman, likely a woman engaged or dating, marries, she has not sinned. Then he says, This, and this is where Paul begins to explain where he's going in his train of thought. He says, yet those who will marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. And thankfully, I think Paul knows that he's being a little bit confusing today. So he says in verse 29, he says, this is what I mean. And we say, okay, Paul, what do you mean? Let me read to you Paul's own explanation for what he's saying. Verse 29 to 31, he says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as those they have none, and those who are mourning as though they are not mourning, and those who are rejoicing as if they are not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they have no goods, and those who deal with the world as if they have no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. In this passage today, we see Paul does agree that the unmarried in Corinth should consider remaining single, and that is what this passage calls the single amongst us today to consider But the reason he gives is not that there is anything inherently wrong with getting married. 
He says the reason singleness or celibacy should be considered is verse 29, because the appointed time has grown very short and because the present form of this world is passing away. And so we have to ask, what do these two phrases mean? When Paul says the appointed time has grown very short, he's saying all we've got is 20 minutes. It's a biblical perspective on your life to consider it short. It seems the older that we get, we become more attuned to this reality that is true, that our lives are short. So whether Christ returns tomorrow or we all here live till we're 110, our appointed time is very short. Then Paul says the present form of this world is passing away. He is talking about this transition that will and in some hard to define way already is taking place as the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth replace and reconfigure the world that we live in. One day sin will pass away, opening the way for God's holiness to permeate the whole earth. One day pain and sickness will pass away, opening the way for our resurrected bodies and everlasting life. One day marriage between two individuals will pass away, opening the way for the perfect union between Christ and his bride. And in these verses, Paul wants us to consider it all as soon. Rogers Park, these verses are to stir within us a sense of urgency and expectancy and alertness based upon our awareness that this age, that our lives are moving towards a clear and definitive future. Then sandwiched between these two statements that create in us this urgency based on the brevity of time that we have, our attention is pricked in verse 29, and maybe controversially so, when Paul writes that those who have wives live as those they have none, and that those who mourn as though they are not mourning, or those who rejoice as though they are not rejoicing. And just to make these statements even more controversial, we might as well add that those who have children live as if they have none. And these statements are Paul putting some flesh in what he has already referred to as worldly troubles. These are troubles that he would like to spare the betrothed, the single folks in Corinth from. And these phrases are intentionally provocative. They make you think, they make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, especially that those who have wives live as though they have none. It's as if they were written through the lens of a wartime mentality. When something so urgent needs attending to that our normal day-to-day responsibilities need to be put on hold. In these verses, verse 29 to 31, Paul is hyperbolically or in an exaggerated way making the point that followers of Jesus who carry a weight of responsibility towards their spices and their children while also seeking to be obedient to Christ's calling on their lives are inevitably at times going to feel stretched thin. Stretched by bedtime routines and getting into small groups stretched by our limitations and being a community of hospitality, stretched by weddings and funerals and being a consistent gospel presence in our neighborhood, stretched by date nights and family days and camping trips and opening up our lives to the lonely and the least among us. And so based on these verses, in summary, the challenge for each of us is going to be having the wisdom to know how to ensure that following Christ throughout every season of life 
including marriage, including children, remains the primary calling on our lives. Which at times is going to mean entrusting our wives and our husbands and our children into God's care, trusting Him to provide for them, even when we are called up in service to others who exist beyond the sphere of our home. Paul's gently, hopefully I am too, stepping on some toes this morning, and mine too, clarifying that those of us with husbands and wives and children don't get a season of life free pass when it comes to service and commitment to the cause of Christ. And yet Paul is a realist. Because what he's really saying today is he's aware that it's going to be a balancing act. He's aware it's going to be difficult. You know, as an example, I've got four kids. Some of you know, eight, six, five. I'm looking at Joe to help me out. Two. It's like a, it's like a rotating pin number is what I say when I try to remember what it is. But I was preparing this and I was, I was thinking, counting up how many hours a week I spend putting children to bed. And literally, I was like, I spend eight to ten hours a week, literally, in a children's room, putting, putting them to bed. And I was thinking, I literally, us parents, we've literally created an extra day in the week that we dedicate our whole lives to just putting children to bed. If you're in a couple of months when, when I'm here and the kids, the kids will be here, you'll see Jackson over the last year. Jackson is four, but he is by the weight of a six-year-old, and he is going through this stage where he just, if I am there and it's Sub Sahara, you know it's kind of small, he wants on my shoulders the entire time, and I'm literally like walking around carrying this six-year-old, and it is a stretch. It is to be stretched thin. I know today, even without the, all of the kids' ministry functioning, parents are being stretched. Paul is saying this because he's a realist. He's He's pushing, he's stepping on some toes, but he knows the legitimate weight of raising a family and following Christ. He knows it's real. And this gets us to the heart of what Paul is saying today, which he reveals in verse 32. He's speaking again to the betrothed, the singles, those who are not yet married but live with marriage as a future possibility. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. And it's clear the kind of anxieties that he wants the betrothed to be free from are the kind of anxieties that we are susceptible to when we are married and raising a family. But Paul is also talking to the married here. Because in fact, he is talking to everyone. He's talking to the married and the singles, both. Paul wants everyone to be free from all kinds of anxieties, whether that's the anxiety of a family life, the anxiety of feeling the need to get married, or the anxiety of feeling pressured to remain single. Let me explain. Verse 32 to 35, Paul is playing around with words a little bit. That's why it's a little confusing, because the word that is translated as anxiety that has two meanings. It's got two different meanings. It can refer to heavy burdens that we know Christ does not want us to carry, and that's the usage found in verse 32. Knowing the influences in Corinth, Paul desires that his readers that they be free from the burden of anxiety that may be weighing on them, weighing down on them if they think they have sinned by getting married. And he wants them to be free from the anxiety of feeling like they're, they're spiritual failures due to their limited capacity as parents or as married people. And yet even after revealing his heart that he desires nobody should be burdened with anxiety over what they ultimately choose to do, he still continues to make his argument for singleness. And this is where the most positive, more positive translation of the word anxiety comes into play. 
From verse 32 onwards, the word translated as anxieties refers to responsibilities and concerns that are, that are legitimate and good, like the necessary responsibility of being a husband or a wife or a father or a mother. The New Living Translation communicates this really, really clearly. And this is how this verse 32 reads in the New Living Translation. An unmarried man can spend his time rightly concerned about doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him due to the capacity of time and energy that he has. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and rightly so, how to please his wife. And then it says this in verse 34, which is the crux of Paul's argument. It says, his, the married man's interests are divided. Then in verse 34, repeats the same, Paul repeats the same logic for women. Her, her, the, the, the married woman's interests are divided. And it's worth noting, Paul is not passing judgment here. He's just simply stating a matter of fact. And then again in verse 35, we see Paul's heart is not to restrain anyone or give anxiety over what someone ultimately chooses to do, whether they get married or they don't. He says, I lay no restraint on you, but he does want to, number one, promote good order, which is a way for Paul to say that he wants to promote what he believes makes good sense. And number two, he wants to secure their undivided devotion to the Lord. And we know Paul clearly doesn't believe that only single people can be undivided in their devotion to the Lord. We, we know that. But there is a point he is making in this passage, and it's the reason Paul is calling us to consider singleness today. Paul knows that married folks have legitimate restraints on their time, legitimate restraints that, yes, sometimes can be overplayed, but restraints that are, that are legitimately that legitimately divide and stretch and pull our minds and our time and our energy away from roles and responsibilities that Paul views as key to the advancement of the gospel. There is a singularity of focus that Paul sees as a possibility when living a single life. Church, do you know what this means? Well, it means, it means a lot of things. Here are three things that it means. Firstly, it means that there is absolutely nothing shameful or defective in being single. There is absolutely nothing shameful or defective in being single. Paul is being incredibly countercultural as a Jewish believer in what he is saying, where marriage was held up in the Jewish culture as the only option and singleness was viewed with suspicion. But Paul turns this on his head and he says, singleness or a life of celibacy is to be celebrated and acknowledged as the legitimate act of devotion in following our single savior. Secondly, this passage means that those that are single are a gift to the life of the church. This passage means that those that are single are a gift to the life of the church. And I'm not talking about their availability to serve in the kids ministry or the setup team. That is all secondary, which will come as the result of ownership and belonging. The primary picture, our passage paints of the unmarried is one of spiritual vitality. The primary picture our passage paints of the unmarried is one of spiritual vitality. 
our passage sets the expectation that those with the greatest means to offer by way of Christian maturity will often be our single brothers and sisters. Yes, marriage sanctifies, we know that, but so does singleness. Thirdly, this passage means it will be the responsibility of all of us to create belonging within the life of the church for those that are single. This passage means that it will be the responsibility of all of us to create belonging within the life of the church for those that are single. The church is not only to be countercultural in its acceptance of singleness, but we are to be a countercultural family in which single brothers and sisters belong deeply. Bound together, not as blood relatives, but as brothers and sisters in Christ. This church is to be all of our home. Finally, let me close speaking a little bit more directly to those that are not married, single, single folks. This passage isn't really talking about singleness. Singleness as a term is, is more passive in nature. Singleness more so refers to those who, for whatever reason, are not yet married. And someone may be in a state of passive singleness their whole lives, waiting hopefully to get married. And there is absolute relevancy from this passage if that is you. But what Paul is talking about in this passage is a way of singleness that is not passive but active, chosen. In the remaining verses from 36 onwards, Paul makes it clear once again that there is nothing wrong with marriage. He especially makes the case that if someone knows that sexual, sexual purity will be a real struggle for them, they should go ahead and they should get married. But he also says if someone believes that they can control their passions, as Paul refers, they should consider remaining single. But what he is advocating for isn't only for those that can control themselves, it is for those that are determined to do so in their hearts. This passage is speaking less about passively being single and more about the active decision to choose celibacy which is to choose the life of undivided devotion which Paul has been talking about. Not because marriage is bad, not because celibacy is morally superior, but because all we've got is 20 minutes. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians as a single man, he wasn't at home looking after his kids. He wasn't celebrating his wedding anniversary in Hawaii. He was on his third missionary journey throughout the Mediterranean. Up to this point, prior to writing 1 Corinthians, Paul has traveled thousands of miles, planting numerous churches, spending month after month and year after year on the road. He's been beaten, he's been imprisoned, and he's already setting his eye on a fourth missionary journey to Spain, which he will never get to because he'll get shipwrecked on his way to Rome, where he'll have to live out his final days, writing letters and encouraging the first century church waiting in line before his execution. Paul probably didn't know as he wrote 1 Corinthians that he was just like the man in the story at the beginning. But then on the other hand, he did know. He knew that the time that had been appointed was short, which did not stir within him indifference but intentionality to make the most of the time of every day that he had been given. 
So if celibacy is what you choose, or if singleness is what God has chosen for you, do not underestimate the ways that Christ is and can use your life. Whether that be here amongst your church, or in the community around us making Christ known, or even in a country where there are very few proclaiming Christ. However Christ uses you along the way, remember that yes, when Christ returns, there will be no more marriage, but there will be one marriage, and it will be yours. There will be intimacy and oneness and togetherness to a degree that the marriages of this world are only a shadow. When Christ laid down his life on the cross, he did so as a groom laying down his life for his bride so that she may be presented one day clean and forgiven before him, but also so that today in this life she may be free. Revelation 19 verse 9 said, Blessed, it has blessed are those who are invited. That is you to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. God, we thank you, God, for your word. God, we thank you that your word speaks um, into all corners of our hearts. Because your word speaks into um, places that are hard and places that we are um, struggling with, God. And God, you don't always give us the easy answer. You don't always give us the easy path. But God, we thank you that you speak truth into our lives. And we thank you that you speak love and grace and there is nothing that you desire for us that is not best for us. So God, I pray that we'll be a people that trust you with our lives. And God, I pray, God, that we'll be a people that see you of incredible, incredible worth so that we would give our all, that we would spend every day, every minute of our lives serving you, whatever that looks like. God, I pray that you'll make us an obedient people. And God, I pray that we will spur one another on in obedience. God, I pray that this church will be a place of belonging for those that are not married, for singles, those that are empty nesters, those at all seasons of life would belong in this place and we would see one another, God, and we would decenter ourselves and that we would serve the other in our midst. Do that. Make us that kind of church, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.